All right. Amen for that. Thank you so much, David, for leading us in that time of worship. And friends, now is the time. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Exodus. And we're going through the Ten Commandments. And of course, this is a section of scripture that even people who don't read the Bible, don't really know the Bible that well, don't go to church, they probably know, or at least they've heard of the Ten Commandments, although I think the knowledge of that is certainly decreasing in the Western world, uh, America in particular. So I think it's important that we unpack each of these one at a time. So we'll be slowing down a little bit. We were trying to take about a chapter at a time, but we do want to focus on each of these commandments. And so today we're going to be looking at simply what is generally referred to as the second commandment. And that's going to be Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. So go ahead, turn there, find your place. Um, but the Lord just put something on my heart right now. So I want to go ahead and just stop us for a moment. And I would like to ask all of you to join with me in praying for these fires that are ravaging the state of California, Oregon, and Washington in particular. Again, if you're joining us from another state and there's something going on there, there's fires or whatever the case might be, and we're unaware of that, please inform us. That's, again, one of these important things about these online times that we have together is I get to find out what's going on in places I wouldn't, I wouldn't know because I don't live in that location. But I do know that there's over a million acres ablaze in California, almost a million as of, I think it was yesterday, in Oregon. Uh, just very, very bad situation. And even for those of us not in the immediate area of these fires, obviously the smoke is um, causing all kinds of problems, you know, uh, affecting people's health. And obviously we don't want lives lost. That's number one. We don't want homes and businesses lost. That's number two. And you know what? We love nature. We love God's creation. And a lot of these uh, beautiful forests and, and trees and natural habitats are being threatened. So if you would just join with me right now, let's say a prayer together. Just join the hands of our hearts and let's pray against these fires for the safety of people and that the Lord will bless those first responders. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you now and we just, we call upon you and we ask that you would send grace and mercy and protection to all those who might be affected by all these fires raging on the West Coast. Lord, we just pray for the safety of lives. Lord, we pray that lives would not be lost. We pray that the information that needs to get from A to B to the people that need to hear it, that it would get there. We pray that people would not be foolish, Lord, that they would be safe in their receiving and responding to that news and reports of the approaching fires, Lord, we pray you would protect lives. Lord, we do pray you would protect people's homes. I, I know that homes aren't as important as people, and ultimately you can rebuild or move somewhere else, but they have value to us. They matter. For many of us, these homes might be places where our children grew up in, where we had great memories together as a family, Thanksgivings and Christmases and and put so much time into fixing them up and making it sort of a reflection uh, of ourselves. And so, Lord, we know that these things matter and they have value. 
And so, Lord, we pray you would protect people's homes. Lord, we pray that you would protect your beautiful creation, Lord. We just don't want to see all these millions of acres just destroyed by these fires. Lord, we pray for the first responders, Lord. We pray that you would bless them and protect them. We thank you for them. We pray no lives would be lost. We pray you would keep them safe. We pray you would give them wisdom on how to fight these fires, the strategies they ought to take with the particular conditions and knowing how to not only fight the fires but keep themselves safe as well. Lord, we just pray even for the weather, that the weather conditions would be such that these fires would not leap and spread, but they would be able to get them under control. And so, Lord, we just call upon you and we just pray that you would answer these things, that all of these fires would be extinguished very soon. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate that. And again, friends, um, if you ever have any updates, let us know. You can comment on our live videos. You can comment on our church wall as well. Just give us updates. If you're in a particularly tough situation, we would want to know about it. So please share that with us. And like I said, if you are in a different state where maybe a lot of people, it's not in the national news and maybe we're not aware of it uh, in our home state, of California. We would want to know that from you guys because we want to uh, pray with you and for you. So please be sure to share that. All right, saints. So it is time to get into God's word. And as I said, today, we're going to be looking at the second commandment or what is traditionally called the second commandment. I'll explain what I mean by that later. Uh, but Exodus chapter 20 verses four through six. And I'm going to take a little bit of a different tact this morning. Um, there's been a number of charges levied by skeptics and critics against the Bible, specifically against the Old Testament. If you notice, when people attack the Bible, they're often more likely to attack the Old Testament than the New. A lot of people will say, oh, you know, I like this Jesus guy, and I like the, the love your neighbor as yourself and pray for your enemies. Yeah, that sounds nice. Uh, so they kind of like that, but then they look at the Old Testament. They really, really don't like the Old Testament, so it gets picked on a lot. And even the Pentateuch and even the law, the Mosaic law, a lot of people will actually attack the Mosaic law. And so what I want to do is I want to actually address some of these things, not only so that perhaps we can talk to somebody or perhaps some of you, if that's how you feel, um, this is how you've understood the biblical text. And, and again, I, I understand that. I'm not saying it's wrong for people to have objections. I mean, if you have them, you have them, that's fine. The only thing I would say is wrong is if you're not open at all to hearing a response. I, I would say that's the issue because then you have a closed heart in a closed mind. But to have an objection is is not wrong. And in fact, I think most people have some kind of objection to the Bible. Specifically, what do I want to address today is the fact that some people have referred to the second commandment in front of us today, Exodus 24 through 6. They've referred to it as A, absurd, B, irrelevant, and C, morally repugnant. So listen to that, friends. Some people have said when they look at this text and they read Exodus 24 through 6, they see something that is absurd or something that is irrelevant and or something that is morally repugnant. And so I actually want to address each of those things. And in so doing, I think there's a lot here for us who are followers of Jesus and who maybe don't have these 
particular objections because I think what these objections do is they drive us closer to the truth. And sometimes by answering objections, we discover more of the truth or the nuances of the truth or the applications of the truth that we might not otherwise seen. And so God can use objections to his word for the benefit of everyone, including believers. So that's what I want to show you this morning. So let's start off by reading the text out loud, and then we'll pray and get into today's study. Exodus 24 through 6, this is God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we just pray that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Lord, I just pray that you would work through this time of teaching to open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would understand your word more clearly and more deeply, for those of us who in any way might be opposed to what we hear in the scriptures today, Lord, my prayer for them is not that they shut off their brain. It's not that they stop being critical. As a matter of fact, I think those things can be good. But Lord, I pray for an open heart. I pray that the hearts of the men and women listening would be open to hearing a word from you. That if there are answers to these objections, if there are answers to difficult questions, then perhaps what we're ultimately opposed to is not the text itself, but the God of the text. Perhaps ultimately what it is is we don't want to believe there's answers because if there's answers, that makes us accountable to the God of Scripture. And Lord, you know that in our sinful natures, we are rebellious. We don't want to submit to your authority. We don't want to do what you say. Or if we want to do what you say, it's only in those parts we already agree with. But when we come to the parts we don't like, we want to feel free to throw them away. So Lord, I just pray for all of us, for the sake of all of us, you would bless our minds and our hearts that we might be true disciples formed by the word of God for the glory of your name. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, so as I've said, I know for some of you, maybe this is, is where you're coming from. You're, uh, again, I think particularly if you don't grow up in the church, you don't grow up in the Christian tradition, um, you probably have a, a lot of objections to Scripture, and it might be really hard for you uh, to come to the Bible. And uh, for some people, maybe they find one thing every few months or every few years that they find difficult. Uh, but friends, let's not forget, there's actually many, many people in the United States of America today who grow up in what we might call secular. They're not raised in a church. They're not raised with religion. Religion is seen as something that causes wars. It causes fights. It's been used for evil. It's been used to support uh, bigotry and, and, and all kinds of things that society now considers to be wrongs. Of course, they might not want to use the word sin, but, but certainly wrong social 
evils that have been done. And so if that's you today, and if it's not you, it's somebody in your life that you work with, a neighbor, whoever it is. And friends, I think as Christians, we can't, we shouldn't be overly defensive about that. If I had grown up that way, I might very well feel the same way. So what we want to do is we want to be able to listen to these objections when they come. And we want to say that there's no question that's off limits. I really want to say that. There's no question that's off limits. The only bad question to me is the one you're not willing to hear the answer to. That's the only bad question. It's, it's the one, it's the red herring where you're throwing it out and somebody's going to spend hours of their time answering your question. And then when they bring it to you, you don't care because that was never the point to begin with. I, I don't want to submit to the God of the Bible, therefore I'm just going to argue with you about everything you say. So my hope is if there are some answers to tough questions like these, we will recognize more and more that the barrier to belief is really not intellectual. It's, it's volitional. It's that of the heart. There's something wrong with us in our will, volitionally, that pushes back against God. And if we can clear those rational, intellectual barriers, I think that exposes the heart and reveals that the heart is the heart of the matter. And so that's what I want to do this morning. And as I mentioned, there's three basic objections to this text, the second commandment. And that is, one, that it's absurd two, that it's irrelevant, and three, morally repugnant. So let's start with number one. Is the second commandment absurd? Now, an objection might go something like this. It appears that if the second commandment is followed to its logical conclusion, then all religious art, such as crosses, and even drawing outlines of Jesus in children's coloring books is sin. The sin of idolatry. If your kids are coloring Jesus with their Crayolas, you are breaking the second commandment. That, that's the objection. This seems obviously absurd and is just another example of how superficial religious fundamentalism can be. Okay, so there's the objection. If you really take the second commandment to its logical extension, then even those of us who have crosses on your wall or a cross necklace or your children or in Sunday school, they draw in a picture of Jesus, you know, with the little lambs and then they're coloring it. That's idolatry. And an objection is like, that's absurd. And this is exactly the kind of example of how religious fundamentalism just flips that switch in the brain, shuts it off, and you just do dumb things. So how might we answer that question? Well, there's several ways, but I want to provide one this morning. This is what I would want to say. The second commandment is not against religious art per se, or pictures of Jesus in children's coloring books for that matter. Rather, the point of the second commandment is to protect the first commandment. Friends, that is the primary point of the second commandment, is to protect the first commandment. Now, let me say a little bit, because I think a lot of people don't realize this, um, but in, your, in the Bible, actually you can see it in your English translation, you'll notice the commandments are not numbered. It doesn't say in the biblical text, first commandment, second commandment, third commandment, fourth and so on. It doesn't say that. So where does that come from? 
Well, that comes from interpreters in church history. And interpreters in church history, both of a Jewish and a Christian variety, um, have then sort, sorted through these, these words, these divine imperatives, and then they have given numbers to them. Now, what you might not know is that not all traditions group them and number them the same. Pervasively in America, we've been shaped by the grouping in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint has been followed by the Greek Orthodox tradition on one side, and I would say, for, from what I've experienced, popular evangelicalism in America. And so in our tradition, uh, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before you, and that's distinct from what we call the second commandment, which is you shall have no, um, you shall make no carved images out of anything in heaven or on earth, etc., etc. So you got one and you got two. But what you might not know is that's not how everyone groups them. We know that both Jewish and Christian groups actually communicate both the first and the second commandment in in our tradition or my tradition at least as one and the same. And that might seem like, well, maybe that doesn't make a big deal. Actually, it does, because it communicates what the purpose of the second really is. In other words, the second is not a detached, arbitrary commandment against any kind of religious art, crosses, Jesus and coloring books, etc., but rather both the Jewish Talmud as well as the Lutheran tradition and some other Christian traditions, actually, I believe the Roman Catholic as well, they group these together as one and the same. So when, the, when Moses gives the commandment or God speaks the commandment through Moses in Exodus, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the way that you'll make sure that doesn't happen is you're not making idols of other gods. So it's, it's protecting the first. Now, I would say in one sense, we, it, it's besides the point to get into uh, uh, authoritative wrestling match over how to group and how to number the Ten Commandments for the main reason that they're not it doesn't do that in Scripture so divine Scripture does not give us a divine numbering by which I can say oh this groupings wrong and this one's right rather what you have is people throughout history who have tried to lump these together in a different way and though I don't think it you have to push the first and second commandment together to understand the interpretation I'm getting I think it's here in the text as well as elsewhere in the Bible. But I do think it's important to acknowledge that the first commandment precedes the second and it is logically prior. The main point is to have no other gods before Yahweh. That, that's the main point. And so I just want to point that out to you. So the main point is that Yahweh's people have no other gods in their lives. That, that's number one. It's not an obsession over images and paintings and statues and all that kind of stuff. That matters, but it's not the main thing. The main thing is that you have no other gods before you. That is number one, and this commandment is protecting against that. So the primary prohibition is against worshiping other gods and their images. Notice that. Notice in the text, it says, look at verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So, again, this idea that this is a blanket, generalized, detached prohibition against religious art misses the point. It's primarily the function. It's the function of it. You will have no image, you will have no painting, you will have no art that you worship. 
You won't do that. So it's the function of it. You will neither bow down nor serve them. Now, this makes perfect sense. This is not absurd if you start with the biblical text. This makes 100% perfect sense. If you consider that the land of Egypt, that the nation of Israel had just left, worshipped idols. They were polytheists and they were idolaters in the outward practical sense. They had many idols and statues and images and hieroglyphics and they would worship these things. So given that in Israel was in Egypt for hundreds of years, and if any people group, whether uh, Israelite or Christian, if you end up in a pagan culture, a non-Christian culture, and you and your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your great-great-great-great-great-grandkids are there and they're being formed in some way, as much as you try to, you know, well, we'll kind of stay in our little religious group and we'll, we'll just read the Bible and we won't watch TV and, we, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. As much as you try to do that, that dominant culture around you is going to, try to rub off on you. And so this makes perfect sense. Israel was in a place where they were making idols, and they weren't just making art, right? But they were actually saying these idols are gods. You got to remember that. Now, it's helpful to remember the nature of idolatry in the ancient world. In the ancient world, idols were not merely symbols of something else. That's what I think a, a lot of modern, uh, say, you know, ultra-conservative religious fundamentalists don't understand. They think even, even a symbol that points to something else is bad. Um, but that's not how idols functioned. In the ancient world, and even in some places today, by the way, certain places in, in India, Hindu shrines, for example, they don't just believe that this statue points to a god. They believe the god inhabits the statue. And that's why they'll bring food to it. That's why they'll sacrifice offerings and bring it to the God. They believe that the spirit actually indwells the idol to the point that the statue is not a symbol, but it actually embodies the deity, the God itself. So again, in the ancient world, and I would even argue at certain times in, in medieval history, and that's why Protestants did react, and I, I think rightly, they reacted against uh, certain forms of these things going on. But I think what happened is, at a certain point in Christian history, uh, people, this is what happens. When something bad happens, you, you react, but then the problem is often we overreact. So because some people were turning these things into worship, you actually had in the early Protestant church, people just destroying everything. Um, the, the iconoclasts, they called them. They were destroying all the religious art, destroying churches, you know, ornate, beautiful structures that were just magnificent uh, works of art. I don't think people were worshiping the church building, but they were beautiful symbols uh, pointing to God. And yet people began destroying these things because of an overreaction to what they perceived as idolatry. And again, part of that was rooted in a real problem, and part of it was rooted in a misunderstanding of the very nature of idolatry, both in the Bible and in the ancient world. So Israel had just left a land full of religious idolatry, and they were heading to a land full of religious idolatry, Canaan. 
the Canaanites all around, and you'll see this later in the New Testament, because the people of God, the Israelites, keep, they get attracted over and over and over and over to these other gods, and these other gods are always represented by these statues, these idols. And so it makes sense in the context, since that is a primary way at that time. Keep in mind what I'm saying. It, that was the primary way at that time that idolatry was practiced, was through the use of, of carved images and the like. And so given that this was the context, it makes perfect sense that God would immediately, right here, begin reforming and re-educating the people of Israel by forbidding the worship of these images. So listen to this. The primary prohibition here is not a blanket prohibition against images or paintings or art of any kind whatsoever, but specifically of fashioning images of false gods for the purpose of worshiping them. That's primarily what it's aimed at. It prohibits fashioning images of false gods, A, for B, the purpose of worshiping and serving them because that's what people did in the ancient world. Now, a couple, there's numerous scholars affirm this very point, that this text is not so much aiming at this idea of religious art, but rather at this false worship of false gods for the purpose of bowing down and serving them. For example, scholars Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say this, the key phrase is, make in order to bow. For later, under the auspices of Moses himself, think about this, if we take this as strict as some fundamentalists do, then Moses is breaking the commandment. Listen to this. Under the auspices of Moses himself later, figures of cherubim, those are angelic beings in heaven, which if you take it the way that some people take it, well, he just broke. It says, you will not make a carved image, cherubim were carved images of things in heaven, and they were in heaven. So what was Moses doing? Under the auspices of Moses himself, figures of cherubim, brazen serpents. And you remember, not only was there a brazen serpent, an image that was molten and made, but is, the Israelites were commanded to look upon it in order to be healed. So God actually gave an order that they stare upon such a created thing, which was an image of something on earth, to look to it in order to be healed. Yes, ultimately it was pointing to God, but it was nevertheless an image oxen, and many other things in the earth beneath were made and never condemned in the Old Testament. The mere making was no sin. It was the making with the intent to give idolatrous worship that was wrong, end quote. Scholar Walter Kaiser says this, quote, none of these is to be made with the intention to worship them. This commandment is not meant to stifle artistic talent, but only to avoid improper substitutes that, like the idols of Canaan, will steal hearts away from the worship of the one true God. One need only to consider the tabernacle with its ornate appointments, all fashioned according to divine instruction, to see that making representations is not absolutely forbidden, end quote. 
Okay, so friends, I think we can see, and again, if you have questions about this, feel free uh, to comment or send me messages later. I'd be more than happy to go further down this road because I know for some of you, um, again, just wanting, and I, I assume good intentions on people and unless I know the fact is otherwise. So I think when there's people who are against Jesus being in coloring books, you know, little outlines of Jesus for children uh, to color or people that have, you know, wear a necklace with a cross or, or a cross on your church, many churches have cross and they say that that's idolatry. Again, I want to assume good intentions. Um, but again, uh, good intentions without knowledge ends up doing harm. And so I think it's very, very clear here that the prohibition is specifically twofold. A, against the creating of images that represent false gods, and B, with the intent of worshiping them and bowing to them. That is clearly the thrust of this commandment. But with that said, so what do we say about images of Yahweh then? Are, are, is, are we saying that's okay? Regarding Yahweh, it would seem the situation is somewhat different. Israel cannot create an image of Yahweh for the reason that Yahweh has not revealed the image of himself. So that's the primary reason. In other words, when it comes to false images, the door's shut, absolute prohibition, no. And you're not going to bow down and serve them at all. When it comes to Yahweh, it's almost like the, the door is mostly shut, but it, it's kept slightly open. But then there's some caution tape that says, well, you're not allowed to go through it, but maybe this door is open for a reason. Well, why, why would it be open? Why wouldn't God just close the door there too? The reason is because Israel cannot create an image of Yahweh for the reason that Yahweh has not revealed himself. In other words, the problem would be that even if Israel constructed or attempted to construct something intended to represent Yahweh, even if it were based on Yahweh's own self-revelation in the Holy Scriptures, so the Bible provides food for art, doesn't it? It describes God, uh, it describes the Ancient of Days in Daniel, it describes God um, in, in the Pillar of Cloud, it, it talks about God in human terms, uh, the arm of God, the, the hand of God, the robe and, and train of his robe and, and of his garment, and, and the, all these. there's a lot of different artistic descriptions of God. And yet the problem is, even if Israel were to attempt to construct an image of Yahweh based on his own self-revelation in the Holy Scriptures, it would at best be an incomplete truth. That's the problem. It wouldn't be that it would be fully wrong. And again, this is the limitation of Christian art. Even Christian art that I, I find beautiful, wonderful, amazing, obviously it's, it's always sort of one-sided. It's not going to communicate everything. In other words, it's possible to have artwork depicting Jesus of Nazareth, right? The incarnate Son of God. It's a little harder, much harder, I'd say, to communicate the divinity of Jesus of Nazareth. How do you communicate that he wasn't just a man, though he certainly was that, fully man, but how do you communicate in art that he's fully divine, infinite, without parts, with, without creation, always was, is, is to come. How do you do that in art? In, in a sense, you really can't. You can create symbols, right? Like people can put like a, a halo glowing over Jesus. That's communicating, oh, he's human, but he's more than human. But it can only go so far. So why is it then with these limitations and incomplete truths, though true they might be, why is it then that the Lord did not close the door completely to an image of himself? The answer is 
Jesus Christ. The reason the door was kept open ever so slightly is because a day was coming when Yahweh's image would be fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.15, the Apostle Paul says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. The invisible God that Israel couldn't create an image of, the image has been revealed. Do you realize that, friends? We don't go back into the Old Testament and act as though we live there with no further benefit of God's saving activity in history, but rather we look back at the second commandment in light of the Christ event in which the image of God that was unattainable by the hands of Israelites has been revealed by God himself. Jesus is the image of God. Is it possible for the uncreated God to be imaged? The biblical answer is yes, but by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, the image of God. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Bible teaches that while Israel could never see God, yet God has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Christians can actually say, I know what Yahweh looks like. He looks like Jesus. Let's go on to the second objection. And the second objection is that of irrelevance. And it goes something like this. If it's true that the second commandment is not so absurd as to, forget, as to forbid pictures of Jesus in children's coloring books, then at best it still seems irrelevant. For the fact is that even today, most modern Western pagans or secular persons do not keep little statues and images of divine beings on their desk that they believe embody a deity and will help them get a high score on an SAT. Many, many non-Christians, secular, agnostic, atheist types in America don't have such things. So in which case, it seems like this is irrelevant. They simply have no such superstitious idols at all. So do you see that in the modern world? If we emphasize idolatry so much that it's just, you know, little art and images and things like that, then actually it doesn't even apply to a modern skeptic or critic in America today who just doesn't believe in any divine beings whatsoever. So is it true that it doesn't apply? The response is this. The second commandment is just as relevant today as ever. And yet within a post-Christian materialistic culture, we must probe deeper and explain the true nature of idolatry. So friends, again, the, the problem with legalism is not that it's not trying to deal with real problems. It's not that it doesn't have some biblical truth. The problem is, is that legalism is shallow. Legalism only deals with problems on the surface. But the problems are far deeper than what legalism allows for. 
Legalism says as long as we don't have Jesus in coloring books, there's no idolatry here. But friends, the Bible would say that's absolutely false. You end up permitting people to engage in idolatrous practices all day long, every day of their lives and say nothing about it. So what we need to do is probe the nature of idolatry a little bit further. What is it? And does it apply to you and I today? Does it apply to a modern secular skeptic? And I would say that it does. Because idolatry does not begin outwardly with statues of gold or silver or wood, but rather within the sinfulness of the human heart. What the later Old Testament will hint at, and the New Testament makes perfectly clear, is that idolatry is, first and foremost, a matter of the heart. Idolatry is not ultimately about art or religious art or a statue or an image. It's ultimately the heart. That's the issue. And so think about this for a moment. If one were to take the superficial understanding of the second commandment, and just, just can't have religious art, okay? And you can't have, you know, the idol statues, etc. Does that mean, therefore, and as direct and perfect consequence of, you've kept the first commandment? Let's refresh your memories. What was the first commandment? Thou shall have no other gods before me. Do you believe that if you just don't have a, a religious icon or statue or painting, that you've obeyed the first? The Bible is very clear that idolatry is far deeper than merely a particular social historical construction of it. Idolatry begins in the heart. You can commit idolatry without any idols or paintings whatsoever. Just like somebody can have a coloring book picture of Jesus and not be committing idolatry, worshiping it, bowing down to it, and asking it questions, <laughs> major questions regarding their life. Idolatry is deeper than that. The Old Testament begins to reveal this particularly in the prophetic writings, but it comes to full fruition on the surface, very clear in the Gospels, in the Pauline and Johannine and the rest of the epistles of the New Testament. So friends, as we dive into what idolatry really is, we're going to start to see that it's as relevant today as ever, that you and I actually have to battle idolatry every day, that our culture is fully given to idols every bit as much as Athens or Babylon or Assyria or any place else in the ancient Near East. The difference is how we go about it. That's it. The only difference. So let me give you, and I encourage you to write this down if you're taking notes. Here is a theological definition of idolatry. Idolatry is the deification of one's inordinate desires. Let me say that again. Idolatry is the deification of one's inordinate desires. So you see how that definition begins in the heart. Do you notice that? That's not an outward definition. That's not like, oh, I can. you have that on your desk. You're an idolater. Oh, you only have a coffee cup on your desk. You're not an idolater. No, this definition begins in the heart. And if you start to think about it and ponder it, maybe some of you immediately are like, wow, I see idolatry in myself. The more you think about it, the more you'll realize either you've got idols in your lives or they're, or they're something you have to battle every day to make sure they don't take the place of God in your life. But you'll notice that it starts there, but also notice it does fit 
with this outward idea of idols. Because what were idols in the ancient world? And again, it helps if you, again, study the Bible and also study the culture uh, of the ancient Near East, of Israel's neighbors. And what you'll find out is these idols were representations of people's desires. For example, how many of you have, have longed to have children? I know I've, I've had friends who were, uh, have, they had fertility issues and they were, uh, it was just vexing them and just crying over it and like, why God, why can't we have children and seeing doctors and the doctors are saying it's going to cost so much money for, for us to do this treatment and, and even though, you know, there's no guarantee and this and that and, and just all these hoops that people are going through and people uh, will understandably, will do just about anything. To, to be able to have this kid that they want, spend any amount of money, I'll go to any doctor, I'll go through anything, and, and I'll be mad at God if I can't have this. Now, friends, many of us don't see anything, there, there being an issue at all, but let's go back to the ancient Near East. They had the same issues. That is why many went to what they called the fertility cults. So, for example, these statues, statues of Aphrodite, the statues of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, Diana, they were symbols of fertility. And the idea was that for those who were struggling having children, you couldn't have, you, you could go to this thing, you would, you would sacrifice, you would give your money and your time to this, to this God, and it would bring about the desire of your heart. Again, they had gods for everything. Do you want to be successful? They had gods for success. Do you want to win in what you want success in battle? We have the gods of war. So all idolatry was in the ancient Near East was exactly this, but done in a particular cultural way. Idolatry always was, both now and then, the deification of one's inordinate desires. The difference is they were what we would call superstitious. And so they would actually create these images and they would project their inward desires and motivations all upon this statue, this object, this deity. All we've done in the ancient world is remove the outward statue. The heart has not changed. The desire to, to be successful more than anything in the world. The desire to... Um, for, for sex for some people, like how they, that's all they think about. That's all they, they can do. I, I've, I've read stories of people who are, oh gosh, you know, pilots or, or executives in their office and, and they're viewing pornography. It's like, you're at work. Like, even if you don't think that's a sin, and as Christians, we know that's sin regardless, but you'd think even if you're just run-of-the-mill pagan, I don't believe in God, you'd think, look, you're at work, buddy. You're flying a plane, you're driving a car, you're, you're in, you're, you have a board meeting in 10 minutes in, in your high-rise office. What in the world are you doing? Friends, these are people who are committing idolatry. It's, it's not just this morning. What they've done is they've turned this into a god. Again, it can be anything. And we'll, we'll go further in just a moment. I'm going to restrain myself there. But do you see the point? Idolatry, if you get hung up just on this idea of, well, it's religious art, you actually miss. What flies under the radar is the real problem. It's the real sin. And it's the one that is present in every culture, including anti-superstitious modern cultures like the United States. 
For example, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, write this down. Watch what Paul does. He's going to use the word idolatry, but notice what it refers to. Colossians 3, 5, Paul says, quote, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Wait a minute, Paul. I didn't see any inanimate statues made of gold, silver, and wood here in that list. There's no idolatry here, Paul. It's just religious art. It's coloring book pictures of Jesus, Paul. There's no idolatry here. Are, well, am I wrong or is Paul wrong? I would argue that I would be wrong and Paul is right if I think all idolatry is is the outward superstitious reflection of someone's inward desires. No. Colossians 3.5 makes clear, and it seems to particularly be a reference to greed, also translated as covetousness or lust. That is idolatry. What did Paul just do there? He took this thing that for so long was viewed as primarily being on the surface, fashioning a carved image of whatever, right? And he located it within the human heart. Idolatry does not proceed from outward works of art, but rather from every single human heart. Idolatry is the deification of one's inordinate desires. In fact, I think Jesus concurred completely with the rabbinic statement, idols are idols, whether mental or metal. Idols are idols, whether mental or metal. And he exposed the true nature of idolatry throughout his earthly ministry. The next time you read the Gospels, I encourage you to read it with this hermeneutic, this principle of interpretation, this recognition of idolatry as being that of the heart. Anything one sets their affections on more than on God. For example, this is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. He doesn't use the word idolatry. That's exactly what he's exposing. Listen to this. Jesus said, anyone who loves their father or mother than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In other words, if anything to Jesus, if anything is allowed to come between you and Jesus, it is an idol. That's idolatry. And friends, that's scary because in a sense, I'm not just, oh, trying to protect religious art and I like architecture and I don't want, you know, crazy you know, people trying to break them down and all that. No, if it's wrong, it's wrong. I'm willing to let it go. Really not that big a deal. As a matter of fact, what I'm proposing the Bible actually teaches about idolatry is far more convicting and far more pervasive than any outward superstitious fashioning of a silver stone wood God. Because this convicts all of us. Who among us is not tempted to exalt your spouse higher than God? 
Who among us is not tempted to take your children, your precious little sons and daughters, your flesh of your flesh, blood of your blood, that you adore, that you you nurtured, you cared for, you dressed, you taught them to read and, and to write, and you took them to their first game and, and to their first class. Well, of course, class would be in your family room now. But you know what I mean? You're just, you've poured all this natural affection, and it is so hard as a parent not to make your children an idol. But friends, we can make an idol out of anything. We can make an idol out of success. Oh, sure, I'm a Christian, I'll go to church. But if Christian morals and principles, obeying Jesus and putting his mission first, gets in the way of me getting a promotion and making a lot of money, well then forget it, I'm just going to quit. If, if worshiping Jesus means worshiping with my time and with my money, but that means I can't get the car I want or the house I want or I can't take the extra vacation I want, well then forget it. That's just going to have to take a backseat because this is worth more to me. Friends, I hope that strikes a chord because it's human. This isn't picking on anybody. I, I, this definition of idolatry, wham, hits me in the heart. I mean, I see right now for me, my the, the idols I have to tend with would, would be my family, especially my, my children, my, my precious little babies that I love for and I would take a bullet for, no question asked. If God, if, if my children, if, if somehow they got between me and God, it would be so hard. To say Jesus, you're you're number one, you know. And what that what does that look like? Because we're we're not offering our children to Molech like the pagan gods, where they didn't care about their children. No, it doesn't mean don't love your children. It means love God more. What would that look like practically? One of the things I definitely thinks it means for us parents is when your kids hit the teenage years and they really start becoming self conscious. And they begin detaching from you, which is natural. It's not wrong. That's what teenagers do. God actually put it in them to want to detach, to leave the nest. But unfortunately, they also have a sinful heart. They were born with it. And so as they detach, they're going to begin sometimes to dishonor their mother and their father. They're going to disobey one of the Ten Commandments right there. And then they're going to want to often fit in with people they shouldn't be wanting to fit in with. And then they're going to begin to pressure you as a parent and say, if you love me, you'll let me stay out all night. If you love me, you'll let me drink alcohol like all my friends. If you love me, you, you won't uh, say I can't date this uh, scumbag person that you know you did a background check on and, and he's a horrible person, whatever. And the parent is pressured. Gosh, I want you to like me. Oh, I, I want you to like, gosh, you, I, don't want any, I don't want you to tell your friends I'm lame. I'm not a cool parent. I don't let you do this. And if you make an idol out of your kids, guess what you're going to do? You're going to sin against God. You're, you're going to try to be the buddy of your kid rather than the parent of your kid. I've seen this over and over and over, and I see the temptation in myself. But it's a decision I've got to make over and over. And again, by loving God and loving him more than my children, I'm not ceasing to love my children. I'm actually fulfilling the right kind of love I ought to have for my children. I'm keeping the love for God, the love of God, unrivaled above and beyond. And from that love, I'm allowing it to shape and order the way in which I love the people in my life. But the temptation, friends, is always going to be to bump out God and to love something in this world. Your own, your own physical health. I know there's people that, you know, they, they look like they're loving God, but then when they find out they're sick, they've got a disease, and, and gosh, there's some 
there's a, a sorcerer, a witch, a fortune teller, a medium that, that's promising healing. I know they're not of God. They're not claiming to be of God. They're claiming to hear from a, an evil spirit. But I don't care because my health matters more than honoring God. Friends, I can understand that as a human being. Gosh, we have this natural survival instinct. Anything I can do to cure myself, gosh, I want to do it. But friends, that's also how Satan lures people. This was the very wager that Satan said to God in respect to Job. He said, skin for skin. That's what Satan said. Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give to save his skin. The challenge was from Satan to God, you think Job loves you, but he loves his body and his health more than you. If he gets sick and he has to go walk away from you to get healing, he'll do it in a second because no one really loves you, God. That was the challenge. Can we love God even when we're sick, even when we're unhealthy? Will we be faithful to him even then? Will you be faithful in your marriage when you fall out of love, when your spouse is not treating you the way that you want to be treated? They're not the person you married 20 years ago or whatever the case might be. Will you be faithful to God? Will you love him more than anything else? Or do you make your happiness an idol that says, I can sin against God and feel right about it? Friends, as you can see, this kind of idolatry, this spiritual theological definition of idolatry grounded, rooted, and displayed in the New Testament reveals what the heart of the matter is. It's a matter of the heart. So the true spiritual definition of idolatry found in the New Testament is far deeper, more penetrating, and convicting than any mere prohibition on certain forms of religious art. Lastly, some might ask, is the second commandment morally repugnant? Now you go, wait a minute, where, where do they even get that idea from? Look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, here we go, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Okay, first of all, you could say God is, is this morally repugnant being right there for being jealous, but it, it goes further. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. So this text can be seen as a morally repugnant text that the God of the Bible here revealed through his own speech by his own mouth is a morally repugnant being. And this is how this objection might be worded. The second commandment appears to reveal Yahweh as a morally repugnant being who takes revenge on innocent children and grandchildren of people who break his laws. That's what it looks like. Pastor Mike, you got this angry God, flies off the handle, he's in a rage, petty jealousy like a child, except he's not a child. He's a big giant God who can do damage to people's lives, and if you sin against him, he's going to make sure your dear, sweet little children and grandchildren are going to pay the price for everything wrong you've ever done. And that's morally repugnant. How should we respond to that? My response is this. God is not unjustly cursing or punishing children directly because of the sins of their parents. I'm gonna argue that's actually not what the text is saying, but rather the text is warning that the sins of the parents who hate God may influence their children to also hate God. And so God is warning parents now that they are adversely affecting their children through their own rebellion. 
So in other words, this is not some mystical curse that God's that the children and the grandchildren of these these idolaters are going to come along and they're sweet, wonderful people who just love God, but God's cursing and ruining their lives anyway because he's just angry, jealous, and, and vengeful. That's not what's being taught. What's being taught is actually something quite familiar and basic, and that is that each and every single one of us are shaped by our upbringing. Our thoughts about God are shaped by our families, both for good and for bad. They're shaped by them. Particular sins that our parents committed. All of our parents were sinners, and, and that's not denigrating their memory. That's not dishonoring your parents. That would actually be dishonoring God to say that they are without sin. Because only God is without sin. Only Jesus Christ was without sin. We all have sin. Now, I think you know, if you've heard me for any length of time, I love my parents. I think they were wonderful parents. I don't think they were perfect. I think they had faults and flaws and even sinned, yes. And at the same time, I think they were wonderful. I think if I could live up to be half the parents that my mother and father were, I would be a great parent. That's really what I think of them. But at the same time, I, I know that they were finite, they were fallible, and they were sinful. There, there's going to be things about life, the, the, the way they lived or, or didn't live, that rub off on me. And those are things where I'm going to deal with it because we often repeat what we see, don't we? I mean, even if you hate something that you see, it's so weird. Uh, when you start, I, I took a family systems theory class um, in seminary, and it's just bizarre seeing how not it's not just like, oh, we see something that's bad, but we like it, so we do it. It's weird how you can see something in your parents, your family that you hate, and you end up doing it. You would think, well, gosh, if I hated it, I'd be the last person to do it, but that's not how human nature is. We, we tend to absorb and to become our family histories and environments. We don't have to, friends. We absolutely don't have to. By the Spirit of God, we can start new. We really can. God is doing a new thing in and through us. But that's not to say suddenly, poof, all of our history goes away. We're having to deal with that. So what God is saying here is what we all know. That look, if you, this generation he's talking to at Sinai, if you sin against me and you become idolaters and you turn this into a pagan nation, what kind of nation do you think it's going to be after you die? Like, take a take a stab in the dark. What do you think? It's probably going to be a pagan nation, right? If you worship idols and you teach your children to worship idols, don't be surprised when they worship idols. That's the point. So this is not the arbitrary judgment of God, but rather what this is saying, it's a warning to parents, make sure you're not wrongly talking about God and treating God and teaching them wrongly about the meaning of the church and the purpose of the church and the mission of the church and the meaning and power of the gospel. Make sure you're not telling lies both with your mouth and with the way you live, your actions and your priorities, because guess what's going to happen? Your children are going to repeat it. Let's get practical. If we don't take church seriously, we don't take the Bible seriously, we don't take prayer seriously, most likely your children won't either. That, that's just how it goes. By the grace of God, it could end up different. That's true. There's always room for God's grace. But typically people will repeat that error. So if you devalue the church, devalue the Bible, devalue prayer, devalue missions where your children and their children and their children will, and then the whole country will go in that direction. Because I know many Christian parents right now that are very, very angry 
about the way things are going in culture, and they're screaming about it, and yet they're also teaching their children that church doesn't matter, we don't need to participate, we don't need to serve, we don't need to give, we don't need to do missions, we don't need to do anything. Oh, but we care about the results. Well, friends, this is the cause of the results. If we are not living the way God wants us to live, then we can't complain about the results of our own actions. So it's important that parents, not just for our own sakes, because maybe some of us were like, eh, I'm willing to, I'm willing to take some lashes from God in order to keep my sinful, sinful lifestyle or priorities or whatever. But friends, if you cannot repent for your own sake, repent for the sake of your children and of your grandchildren, because it's going to rub off on them. So that's what God is talking about. The children, the third and fourth generation, aren't going to pay some arbitrary penalty for the sins of their ancestors. Rather, the sins of their ancestors rub off on them, and they marry, may very well repeat them, and then they'll get punished. And the idea was, especially for ancient Israel, who was a communal culture, that would have hit them in the heart. That would have been like, gosh, you know, I'm willing to sin against God because I'm enjoying my life. But gosh, if it's really going to ruin my grandkids' lives, you know what? Maybe I'll change. Maybe I'll change my life right now because I don't want it to rub off wrongly on them. And to affirm this, Old Testament scholar Doug Stewart says this, quote, In other words, God will not say, I won't punish this generation for what they are doing to break my covenant because, after all, they merely learned it from their parents. Instead, God will indeed punish generation after generation to the third and fourth generation if they keep doing the same sorts of sins that prior generations did. If the children continue to do the sins of their parents, they will receive the same punishment as their parents, end quote. So that is what it is talking about. And moreover, let me go beyond this. The Bible is very clear elsewhere that God is not going to punish people for other people's sins. Deuteronomy 24, 16. Moses writes this, speaking from God, quote, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sin. So again, Deuteronomy 24, 16 makes very clear this is not talking about arbitrary wrath poured out on poor innocent people who didn't do anything wrong. Okay, Pastor Mike, very good, but we still got the problem of God being jealous. Okay, well, what do we say about that? Um, first of all, the Hebrew word is kana, and kana can be rightly translated both as jealous and as zealous. As a matter of fact, the Greek translation of the very passage in front of us used the Greek word zeletos, zealous, where we get the word zealous. But I don't necessarily think the word jealous is wrong to use here. But I think what we have to do is be careful of not attributing finite, fallible, sinful human modes of jealousy onto God. Because when we think of jealousy, one of the reasons we think it's bad is because sometimes it is. Sometimes you and I can be jealous when we shouldn't be jealous. You can be jealous over something or someone that's not yours. I, I, I've seen this, you know, in uh, you know, junior high and high school where, you know, somebody was, was dating somebody and then somebody who wasn't even dating somebody, and dating is not a biblical category, folks, so whatever you want to do with that. But, you know, so so-and-so is dating so-and-so, and then this person is jealous that so-and-so is dating so-and-so. And it's like, you have no right to be jealous. They're not yours. 
they, I mean, even, even then they've got kind of an agreement. Hey, we're seeing each other, but you, you don't belong to each other. You're not married. There's no covenant there. It's just whatever, figuring things out, I guess. But you have no right to be jealous. And yet this person could be crazy and, and stalking and, and all this kind of stuff. So people... People can, they're sinful, and so their jealousy is often tainted by sinfulness. But is jealousy always necessarily sinful? I don't think so. If you remember what I told you last week, that the context of the Ten Commandments is Yahweh's wedding day. That God rescued and wooed Israel as his bride. And he's brought her out to Mount Sinai to enter into a covenant. And when it says in the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, God is saying the wedding vows. They're saying the vows together. And Israel is saying, we will forsake all others for rich or poor uh, until death do us part. Israel is becoming the bride of the Lord. Now think about a husband and wife. If a husband or a wife was to start uh, being wooed away by another man or another woman, would it be sinful for the married spouse to sense a feeling of jealousy? Do we want to say that's wrong? Ah, oh, you should just let it go. So what? Your wife or husband uh, is going out on dates with somebody else and and uh, they're sending them little love notes and they can barely stand being, ah, just don't worry about it. It'd be sinful to be jealous. Friends, I think you and I know that's absurd. I think we know that in the right context, and again, not just the feeling, but what we do with the feeling, so there's two components, but I think we can recognize that the mere feeling of jealousy within the context of marital union and relations and protecting what does belong to one another and ultimately to God is actually right. There is a godly jealousy. Paul even uses that very phrase. I've yearned for you talking about the church, the churches that he birthed in the gospel. I yearn for you with a godly jealousy. In other words, not a jealousy of this world that is so often completely inappropriate, even in its sentiment, namely this person or thing doesn't even belong to me anyway, or be sinful and you lose control, you fly off the handle rather than asking questions and, and making sure or trying to solve a problem. You just fly off the handle and get angry or, or whatever it is. But God doesn't do those things. When God is jealous, it is like a spouse being jealous over someone seeking to intrude on the grounds of their holy matrimony, their holy marriage. That feeling of jealousy is right. And God, unlike you and I, is perfectly in control. His love, his reason, his will, and his jealousy as well as his wrath are all one. They are not separated. He doesn't lose his temper one day and then regain it the next. God is always perfectly in control of himself. He never ceases to be perfectly good, even in his jealousy. And so again, the problem here is, is a bigger theological problem, which is we often in scripture will push on to God, the infinite, uncreated, perfect being, things related to our finite sinful humanity, and assume that's what scripture is saying about God. But as I hope I've shown you, friends, that is most definitely not the case. So how can we wrap this up on a practical note? Again, I think maybe this helps us to engage with people who have sincere objections to Scripture. Maybe some of us even had these sort of feelings or thoughts in our minds, so I hope that helped. But what about our walk with Jesus this week? What difference does this talk about the second commandment have to do with you and I 
at the heart level for those who are already professing followers of Jesus. And what I would say is I would simply ask you all this. So what have you set your heart on that rivals or surpasses your love for Jesus? I would write that question down and ponder it this week. If you can answer it today, take the time on the Lord's day to meditate, reflect, to, re to ask the Lord to show you and write it down. I highly answer you do that. I know many of you have a day planned with your family. Some of you, I know it was a big stretch just to get you to join church online because you know it's opening day of football, of the NFL. But friends, if you don't do it today, please do it this week. Ask yourself this question with a pen and paper in hand. Time alone with the Lord, no distractions. Answer this question. So what have you set your heart on that rivals or surpasses your love for Jesus? Remember what I said today. Idolatry is anything, 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 including good things that you seek, desire, and enjoy more than the only true image of God, Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that we will each take the time this week to examine ourselves, to invite the Holy Spirit to read our hearts. Remember, the Bible is not just simply a book we read, but a book that reads us. Friends, I believe some of us have idols in our lives. Something is number one, and it's not Jesus. Whether it's my health, my marriage, my comfort, my job, my money, my reputation, what people think about me, uh, whatever the case might be, if there's something that is number one and it's not Jesus, that is idolatry and it's something that we need to repent of. Perhaps you might say, well, I don't think I have an idol, but friends, I think I can guarantee this. There is a rival for the number one place in your life and it might not be the same as your neighbor's. It might not be the same as your brother and sister, so don't just look at them and assume you're fine. Every single one of us has something in our lives, both due to the sin nature that still remains even in believers, and certainly the world, the world is set up to entice you, to attract you, and to sell you a bill of goods that cannot deliver. And then we also believe there is Satan and demons who are energizing the world to draw you to such idols. So friends, let us not be ignorant. That would be the, the biggest grieving thing in my heart as a pastor is if any of you could leave this study and think either A, I have no idols in my life, or B, there's not even a rival for Jesus in my life. Friends, I know that's not true for those three reasons. You have a sin nature. We are in a fallen world designed to attract and entice your sin nature. Satan is at work in the world. So friends, the real question is, what is it? And let us come before the throne of God. Let us come to him who is the image of God through the spirit of God and ask that he would mold us and shape us in his image so that we desire Jesus more than any earthly thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we just thank you and praise you for your word. Lord, I thank you that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is not simply a book that we read, but a book that reads us. Lord, it's my prayer for myself. 
as well as all my brothers and sisters joining with me online today, that you would open up and reveal to us, to our friends, to our brothers and sisters, to our spouses, what these idols or rivals are in our life. Lord, I believe some of us, we may have had idols for many, many years, professing to follow Jesus, but only doing insofar as they are allowed to keep something else number one. And if there's ever a, a Bible study, a message, a conviction that says they've got to change, they've got to sacrifice, they've got to give up, they've got to reorganize their priorities, they simply refuse to do it. Lord, I believe that there is spiritual power behind such idols, Lord. That's why it's not easy to quit. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would show them first and foremost that you love them more than anyone is capable of loving you. Lord, that you are capable of fulfilling them more than anything in this world they believe can ultimately fulfill them. Lord, I believe that you show us the image of God, which is Christ. If you show us his glory, his manifest excellence, Lord, I believe all these things will fall to the wayside. We will see that it is all hay, woods, and stubble. Lord, I pray you would show us the glory of Christ. I pray that we would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we would not love father, mother, sister, brothers, wife, children. No, not even our own life more than you. We would love you more than anything. And out of that love, Lord, we will be able to rightly prioritize the other loves in our lives and to be the kind of person that others need us to be. I just pray for this blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, well, I hope today's service and message was a blessing to you. Again, if you have any questions on today's message, feel free. You can either comment there or you can send me a direct message, either through Facebook or you can send me uh, an email asking any questions, follow-up questions, and that would be information at imagechurchoc.com. Also, for those of you that would like to give to the Lord and support the ministry of Image Church, there's two ways that you can do that. Uh, the first one is you can go onto our website, which is imagechurchoc.com, and there's a giving tab at the top, and you can just click on that, and then you can give with either your debit card or credit card. If you prefer to mail in a check or money order, you can do that. Send that to our church mailing address, which is 27762 Antonio Parkway L is in Larry 514 and that's Ladera Ranch California 92694 again all that information is on our website again there's no pressure to give the Bible says that we do this out of a joyful cheerful heart God loves a cheerful giver we're doing it as unto the Lord so again friends no pressure whatsoever I don't want anyone to feel that way um, just a reminder again if today's message was a blessing to you do us a favor and help us get the word out if you just like our post if you share it on your page or with some friends or family that you think might be able to benefit from it that would be wonderful uh, for those of you that are watching and you don't have a Facebook account you can just copy and paste the link up above and you can email that or even text it uh, to people so that they can watch it um, again friends I hope you'll join us for our midweek Bible study we're currently going through a series 
series called The Drive-Through Prophets, and it's an overview of the 12 minor prophets who make a major difference. And so I hope you'll join us this Wednesday for that at 7 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Again, we do an hour of live prayer on the Calvary Chapel Facebook page Monday through Friday from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. You're invited to join us for that. We also have a prayer team at the church that meets on Fridays at noon. If you have any prayer requests for yourself, for your family, for the church, for the country, for the world, whatever the case might be, we would be more than happy to pray for you. So you can just send those, um, again, either through the Facebook messaging feature or to that email I gave you earlier, which was information at imagechurchoc.com. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining with me today. Let me just close with this brief word of blessing. May the grace and truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining with me today, everyone, and I look forward to joining with you again very, very soon. Have a great week, and God bless you.